technologies that are dominating today, they're dominating because they're able to deliver force faster, harder, stronger, smarter. So if we ask the question, what is money? Money is the highest form of energy that human beings can channel. Bitcoin is channeling human ingenuity into making it better. And, and every commodity is channeling human energy into making it worse. The lowbrow or, or the, the, the historic colloquial term is hodl, right? Hold on for dear life or just hodl or, or save whatever. And the highbrow term would be adopt as a treasury reserve asset. Hey everyone, welcome to episode one of the What Is Money show. I'm your host, Robert Breedlove, uh, and our purpose in this show in general is the pursuit of truth. Uh, we're gonna explore many topics in depth, and many of them will take us down the proverbial Bitcoin rabbit hole by pursuing what I call is the rabbit. And the rabbit is that question, that all important question, what is money? And this question is a seemingly inexhaustible generator of answers uh, that have continuously reshaped my perspectives on the world. Um, and I, I think they will for you as well. And our first episode is part of a long series with Michael Saylor, who's the CEO of MicroStrategy. Uh, Michael is the latest and arguably the greatest proponent of Bitcoin and uh, an ally for the space in its battle for truth and freedom in the world. And Michael is, uh, as I said, he's, he's the leader of MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy is a NASDAQ-listed business intelligence firm. So Michael has very deep experience in the fields of technology, uh, network architecture, um, things like this. And in fact, uh, he was actually educated in the domain of scientific paradigm shifts, and uh, the impact of technology on civilization. And 10 years ago, Michael actually wrote a book called The Mobile Wave that uh, depicted many of the impacts that he saw, um, say, FANG stocks would have on the world. So Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Google. He had laid out a case, an investment case largely for these companies um, and their, their dominance in, in the global marketplace. And clearly over the past 10 years, as we, we sit down in 2020, the, the, those stocks have been uh, standout performers and have become in many ways uh, the new dominant monopolies in the world today. So Michael has a very deep understanding of these, these topics that I think actually predisposed him to gaining a, a rapid understanding of Bitcoin. Uh, and as you'll see, uh, or as you may have heard in other interviews, he really entered the Bitcoin space in 2020 and got uh, very deep into the rabbit hole very quickly in the wake of the, the COVID global lockdown situation. So uh, Michael's a very intelligent guy, very high energy, very hardworking. Um, and I think his acceleration into the Bitcoin rabbit hole also demonstrates that a lot of this trail 
has been blazed before him. So we've, a lot of Bitcoin maximalists have laid the foundation for others to gain a more rapid and clear understanding of the impact of Bitcoin. Uh, and in the wake of that, as you all probably know, but you may have not heard, uh, Michael's firm, MicroStrategy, actually named Bitcoin as its primary treasury reserve asset. Uh, they initially invested $425 million into Bitcoin. And then Michael personally uh, publicly disclosed that he holds about 17,000 Bitcoin himself. So uh, he's got a lot of skin in the game, to say the least. And um, I think you'll see why as we go through some of this. Uh, so in this, what we're calling the Sailor series, uh, we're gonna start from the first principles of energy, of anthropology, of technology, and really build a solid foundation for gaining a deep understanding of Bitcoin's potential impact on the world. Um, and Michael and I, to craft this, this series, we iterated on a discussion framework, and we finally arrived at his overarching thesis, uh, which he was kind enough to lay out in a very uh, sophisticated form. And he goes very deep on the topics we've laid out here, um, which starts kind of very early, like Stone Age, and we build all the way into modernity. So this is a long, uh, long narrative arc, but super fascinating, very interesting stuff. And clearly it takes us some time to build up to Bitcoin, but the, the journey itself, it's purposeful and it's well worth it. Um, so we've divided the content itself into time-stamped chapters and sub-chapters. Uh, we've, we've chopped it into a bunch of episodes. Each episode is comprised of chapters and then to those chapters, there are sub-chapters. Uh, we'll have timestamps available both in the video bar and in the description to the video. And the early episodes will include a lot of Michael talking, so a lot of uh, him kind of speaking solo about his, his uh, bedrock thesis on, on energy and anthropology and technology, things like this. And then as we build into modernity and to Bitcoin, it will become much more of a dialogue and conversation as we go back and forth uh, about Bitcoin and, and things of that nature. So I realize this is really long form content, but I assure you and promise you, <laughs> you're gonna find it deeply meaningful. Uh, I myself found I, uh, the feeling of chills at times, you know, there were various epiphanies I had going through this, which I'll articulate in some of the outros to the episodes. Um, but it's just, this is dynamite content. And I think it's a great um, view into the mind of Michael Saylor. Um, and it's very, it makes a very powerful case uh, for Bitcoin and, and how much it's going to, to reshape the world. So I, I promise you that you'll find, you know, despite the time it may take you, you're gonna find this extremely intellectually satisfying, perhaps even philosophically satisfying. Uh, we go really deep on a lot of topics, so hope you, hope you enjoy it. And, you know, I firmly believe the insights that come out of this will actually reshape your worldview. So if this is the kind of content you're interested in and you're really interested at, at going deep and getting to truth, uh, I think you're in the right place today. So with that, uh, let's jump into episode one of the Sailor series here on the What Is Money show. Michael Sailor, thank you for joining me. Well, happy to be here, Robert. Thanks for inviting me. So for a man that runs a company named MicroStrategy, you may have just executed the most brilliant macroeconomic strategy there has ever been. How does it feel? Uh, it's been a busy uh, 
a busy quarter, I would say. <laughs> really busy. It's been a busy year. You know, January 1st of this year, the year started out one way, and then uh, it became something altogether different in March. And uh, it became something altogether different again by June. And uh, now we're in September. And I, you know, I, I, I look back on it, and certainly there's a lot of things I didn't expect. And I joke with people, you know, if I'd gotten what I wanted, I wouldn't have gotten what I needed. I wouldn't have been nearly as successful if at any point in time I got what I wanted. I'm sure this is not what I wanted when I started the year. And for a while, I thought it wasn't, it wasn't terribly a good thing. But now, as we move toward the end of the year, you know, I, I see the silver lining here, and I'm glad these things happened, which is, uh, which is fascinating. Yeah, so it sounds like the world, in a lot of ways, got a wake-up call this year, right? On a lot of different levels. And um, for you, particularly, it was the the melting ice you were sitting on that maybe started to melt a little bit faster. Yeah, you know, there's there's two there's two quotes from Lenin's era. There's a Trotsky's quote: "You may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you." And this year we we launched one war on COVID and another war on currency. And so we were caught up in kind of two wars, in two dimensions. And then there's Lenin's quote, you know, uh, there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. Right. And right. this was that year in both of those ways. And uh, I'm grateful that that our company is an enterprise software company. We Our value proposition is we ship software to large enterprises to help them think better. And uh, the value proposition is intact, if not even, uh, even uh, improved by all of the changes this year. And our, our cost structure and our operational systems, the way we operate, were, were uh, dramatically impacted and we had to adjust but I, I would say this was the year that digital transformation went from being a bromide or, um, or dalliance to being something that you, that you really had to internalize. This was the year that digital tra- transformation really did transform you, mm-hmm. in, you know, at the, the core of your being. It, I mean, it transformed my ideas about money it transformed my ideas about sales, marketing, and services. It transformed my ideas about what product offering we should deliver to the market. It transformed my ideas about the marketplace and the future in general. And it's been thrown around as a buzzword for a decade, maybe for two or three decades. But this is the year when you kind of got it viscerally in your bones if you mm. had been dragging your feet the least amount. Yeah, I think it's a great, great points there. And as if the world wasn't changing quickly enough, right? As we progress further into this digital age, it's as if COVID was just a massive accelerant on the entire process. Um, So not only are things 
you know, transforming much more quickly now, moving to digital much more quickly, but are likely to change even more quickly, exponentially so into the future. So, you know, with that, the the theme of this conversation today um, is deep conversations. And I know you're a deep thinker, and I, I've really appreciated the media work you've been doing um, and the, the voice you've brought to the Bitcoin community. And I'd like to jump in as kind of like first principles, a look at history and what got us to today, what got us to this digital age that's changing so quickly, and where do we see it going? Um, and I, I know you've thought deeply about this, and you know maybe we could start just at the beginning, so to speak, with, with historic technology. Okay. Well, the, I mean, the phrase that runs through my head is, is um, there's never been such a thing as a fair fight. <laughs> Humans have been struggling for millions of years, right, in order to rise, uh, first to become the, you know, the apex predator in nature. But if you look at our struggle against nature, there's never such thing as a fair fight. I remember seeing eagles fly along a, a mountainside. It'll home in on a goat, or and it focuses on a baby goat, not the not the parent goat. Catches it from behind, grabs its foot, and drags it off a cliff, and then backs off and waits while the goat goes bang, 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 and hits rocks every 50 feet and is smashed to death 500 feet below where the eagle circles down, lands on the goat, eats it leisurely. Wow. Yeah. Nothing fair about it. If, you know, you feel sorry for the goat and then you realize this is not a human being, this is nature, it's not mm. fair. Then you see lions, and it's not like one lion chases down one gazelle. It's eight lions chase 67 gazelle into a channel with three other lions waiting, and one gazelle is forced to take the right side because it gets crowded out by the other 16 gazelle, and that one, bam! is dead for no other reason other than it just happened to be on the right side of the herd. And there's nothing fair about it. You know, nature's not fair. And when you think about the plight of man, the amazing thing is we actually evolved, right, to be, to be the apex creature on this planet. You know, because a single individual on their own has almost no chance, right? Like, there's that scene in Jurassic Park and there's the bully and he just is mean to the little, whatever, the little dinosaur creature, like some kind of small raptor and it's like the size of a little dog and he kind of kicks it around and he's a bully and a sadist. <laughs> and then there's the point where he gets trapped in the park and he's walking and he sees that little creature and it nips at his legs and he kicks it and then he turns around and he sees it's got a friend and there's two of them and he looks around again and there's four of them and then they jump on him and he knocks them off and then there's 16 of them and then there's this overarch and then they all jump on him and he fights them off and he gets up and he runs and now there's 32 of them and then you you know the uh, the human being right the modern the modern uh 
American that lives in their world of shopping centers and cars and air conditioned houses and locked doors and 911 and policemen they can call and a feeling of safety. And they look at nature through a zoo, mm. right? And they look through the bars and that's nature or it's in paintings and it's all just so romantic, right? They don't have this view of nature the view when there's 64 of those things and the over the the horrifying realization that that guy is as sure as dead he's dead man walking he's going to die there's not a damn thing he can do it doesn't matter if he has a bazooka it doesn't matter if he has a machine gun it doesn't matter he's going to die. at some point in the next 48 hours he's going to fall asleep and they're going to eat him and <clears throat> That's the human condition. So when you think about that three million years ago, and your first question is, how do we even make it here? It's pretty obvious that in that circumstance, if you're alone, you're dead. You're going to have to have someone to guard your back, right? And, and you know, my heart goes out to the, you know, the Adam and Eve, right? Who, wherever they were, right. you needed two, three, four. You needed a tribe. You needed someone to watch because when you fall asleep, something is going to eat you watch a pack of wolves hunt the one that kills you isn't attacking from the front you're you're not going to get to fight it off it's going to be an asymmetric attack from the rear while you're asleep and uh and so the importance of human beings using their brains and thinking is uh, is incredibly important and you, and you start to figure out how do we survive in a hostile universe we we have to figure out how we can get harder, smarter, faster, and stronger. And uh, that's, that takes us to the, to the beginning of man. So if I look back at Stone Age technology and you ask, how, how do we even emerge uh, from this you know, incredible, terrifying scrum? And... Uh, there's just key technologies uh, that you, you decide you kind of like in a hurry, right? One of them is fire. One of them is missiles. One of them is hydraulics. And so there's a lot more we could talk about. But if we start with fire, fire is like the prime energy network of the human race. It all started for us with channeling energy. And uh, when you start a fire... Uh, and what is it? fire is a chain reaction, right? Where we're releasing the latent energy in matter. Mm -hmm. We're converting matter into energy, right? Which is like stored um, sunlight we're releasing, right? Stored, yeah, stored sunlight. You're that human being and you want to rise above the tigers and the packs of wolves and the other creatures and the snakes and the jungle. How are you going to do that? You're going to have to tap into and channel energy. And that's why Prometheus has such an incredible mythic place. Prometheus is to Satoshi, right, as fire is to Bitcoin. Mm. Bitcoin's a fire. It's a fire in cyberspace. Yeah. And most people don't realize it, but, but it, has its, uh, it has its antecedents, right? And fire came along first. And when you think about what it means, and most people don't, you don't necessarily think very hard about it. You always had it, right? If you're an individual, what can you do with fire? Well, 
you can start by by uh, starting a fire so you don't freeze to death. <laughs> That's pretty useful. You know, the fire will scare away the animal. So I start the fire. I can I can sleep around it and I cannot freeze. I can also put it around my camp and then maybe something that other like a snake that would have slithered in and eaten me will go away. I can scare away insects and smoke away insects with it. That's useful. I can hunt with it. I can start a fire and I can drive the prey away from the fire. You know, and if I'm smart, I drive the prey from the fire off the cliff. I wait for them to trip. I go to the bottom of the cliff. I find one that broke its neck. You ever get in a fight with a horse or a fight with a hippopotamus or an elephant? It's not going to end well. This idea of heroic hand-to-hand combat is a great idea in the movies. It's an awful idea in, in reality. And if you went back a million years, you would find that, that uh, your great-great-great-great-great-whatever-grandparent thought you're pretty freaking stupid to fight hand-on-hand with anything or anyone. <laughs> so I hunt with it. I cook with it. There's a, you know, there's a lot of biologists that make, and the paleo theorists that, uh, that make a very compelling argument that, that human anatomy actually evolved because we mastered fire. And when you're cooking something, you're pre-digesting it. And if you pre-digest something, not only do you increase the scope of the foods that you can consume, you also accelerate and, and you increase the efficiency with which you convert that food into calories maybe by a factor of 10 to 1 or 20 to 1. And if you can actually metabolize the food 10 times more efficiently, your uh, digestive tract shortens, and the energy that your body expends in order to digest food can be redirected probably to your brain. Right. right? Animals yeah. that don't cook food have small brains. Animals that a human being can cook food can, can have a very short digestive tract can eat anything. We're omnivores. We can go anywhere. We can metabolize calories that are very efficient. We can eat. Only takes us ten or fifteen minutes a day to get all the calories we need. There are animals that have to graze all day to get yeah. the calories they need. So, fire is, is critical for that. It's critical for seeing, right? You 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 channel your fire, and you can light up a cave. You can light up a camp. You can light up a tent, you can line up any area. And with the seeing comes communicating. You ever travel through the um, the ancient world, you see they'd have all these watchtowers. The Romans built watchtowers. You put a fire in the tower, you can see it from miles and miles away. You create a signal system. A certain presumptive arrogance or ignorance amongst modern, modern men. We think that kind of everything worth doing was done in the past 2,000 years or 3,000 years. I kind of figure 100,000 years ago, people were doing all this stuff. They, we might not have the writings of it, but, but uh, they were pretty smart. So I'm going to use the fire for all those things and then eventually for communicating. But once I figure that out, I can use it for hardening, right? I can, I can cook things, right? I could, I could harden the, the tip of a spear, right? I can... I can use it to work metals, and eventually we used it to work metals, and that ushered us into, you know, from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Um, 
you, you know, fire is intrinsic to manufacturing processes, all sorts of manufacturing processes. And of course, I give you a thousand acres of, um, of forest, Robert, how are you going to clear it? <laughs> Sounds like fire would be the easiest way. Tractor and a hundred thousand BC fire. Yeah. You're going to burn it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, every, you know, everybody talks about, or I see these, these discussions. Oh yeah. Well, paleo man, they're all hunter gatherers and they're just like walking around chasing after things that are running away from them. I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> like, like if I dropped you into a hundred thousand BC, I don't think you would on solo chase after a bunch of stuff with four legs. I think you would start by finding a, you know, a Canyon and start a fire on one end and dig a trench on the other end and let something a mastodon trip on it and break its neck. It's sort of life's way to take the most energy efficient strategy, right? That's why the, the eagle would drop the goat off the cliff and let gravity do its work, right? Instead of trying to fight it out. Um, and it's, it's interesting that you, you bring up fire and it's, it's almost as if we were using it to energize our strategies in the world, right? And uh, I think as you put it earlier, um, channeling it, channeling energy through our intellect. And I, I think the one piece that maybe we didn't hit on as much is the, the intellect itself develops through trade and interaction, right? That's how we are more than the sum of our parts is by cooperation. And that, that's sort of at the kernel of all economics, right? We, ha we have these ideas, we swap them, they become better over time, and we get to energize better and better strategies. The phrase, right? You're playing with fire. Be careful, you might get burned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, what, what makes human beings unique is, is, as far as I can see, they're the only animal that plays with fire. Yeah. And, right. and from the point we started to play with fire, we started to evolve at a very rapid rate. Genetic, we evolved, we evolved. Intellectually, we evolved. Sociologically, we evolved. And we talk about the fire of truth and the fire of faith. You know, it's like, or the keeper of the flame. You know, and the keeper of the flame really means something. If you have a, a city, a village, a civilization, a tribe, and you've got a fire and it goes out, it, you might very well die. You don't want, want that fire to go out. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Bitcoin and the Bitcoin blockchain is a fire. We don't want it to go out either. We talk, you know, we talk about feeding the fire of Bitcoin and we talk about feeding the fire of faith and, and, and uh, simply... Uh, being the keeper of the flame, it was an old idea thousands and thousands of years ago. I suspect it's the difference between life and death for humanity for a million years. And uh, when you've got fire, you, st you, know, you started the fire, it's all good. But now I want you to like go back 100,000 years and be running around in 42 degree temperature while it's raining on you. Or what happens when it goes to 20 degrees? If it's cold, and you're wet you're and the fire down. goes out, you're going to die, right? This is a, it's not an academic thing. It's a, it's a serious thing. So human beings harnessed fire and it made all the difference. And then along comes the, the next set of thoughts, right? If, if you can harness fire, maybe you can develop a brain. 
and uh, maybe you'll live long enough to use it. A next observation is, you know, you ever rustle around with a lion or a tiger or a bear? Pick any animal that you wish to kill, and you ever rustle? You ever wrestle with a dog that weighs eighty pounds? Not easy. <laughs> Would you like to fight with one? How do you feel about fighting with ten? How do you feel about trying to run any of these things down? You know that I, I read about, you know, in runners' world, right? Runners all they want to tell you about how humans were always made to run, you know, because ancient mankind chased its prey. It could run twenty miles a day or thirty miles a day, and we just run them down until they get tired. Okay, well, that that's one idea, and and oh, maybe we did. But you ever try to catch something that's running away from you while you're hungry around dinner time? I, I don't really want to run for 20 hours straight until I tire it to death. I have a better idea, which is hit it with a missile. And by the way, I, I really mean literally missiles. I mean, a, I mean a sling, a primitive sling, or I mean an arrow. And I think they found arrowheads that go back 100,000 years. I mean, like they're, they're old. Most people think of a slingshot and they think um, they think about the kid's slingshot with the rubber band and and uh, and the like the kids play with. But um, this is more like study, David and Goliath's sling, right? Yeah, if you study uh, Roman history and you go back a thousand years before Rome, they had slingers. I mean, the Balearic Islands, like Ibiza, they were very famous for slingers. And if you read about them, what they'll say in the ancient text is is the natives of the Balearic Islands were raised from age three before they could speak. They were raised to operate a sling. The sling is about six to eight feet long. It's made of animal fiber. And, uh, you know, you know, I throw a baseball and you've seen highlight, right? If I increase the lever at the end, and if your arm was 12 feet long, you generate some serious leverage, a whip action. So those slings give the average person the equivalent of a of a 10 foot long or a 12 foot long, probably 10 foot long arm. And they practice with those for years from age three. You can imagine after 15 years of practicing, you get pretty good. And they weren't slinging little light stones or the shit that you pick up on the, on the um, uh, seashore. They're actually forming lead bullets. Okay, everybody thinks, "Oh, yeah, bullets are from guns." Well, they're not. I mean, people invented bullets thousands of years before guns. <laughs> guns were just the latest idea of putting bullets together with gunpowder. Um, the lead bullets probably came along 10,000 BC, and maybe more, maybe 100,000 BC. This is a straightforward idea. If your life depended upon it, you would figure it out. And the figuring out is you get yourself a very dense bullet, you put it in a sling. You, you ever seen a good pitcher? A good pitcher mm. can place the ball, what, 90 feet away, plus or minus four inches? Mm -hmm. Can a good pitcher hit you in the head if you're standing on the plate? Okay, now imagine someone that's pitching a one-inch or a half-inch stone bullet or bullet, a lead bullet, from 50 yards away that can hit you in the head every time. 
because the Romans said they could. Okay, oh. right? Now, you know, so now think about that, and this is how bad it is, right? We talk about this in a bit, but but to make the point, these guys could stand 100 meters, 200 meters off, and from 200 meters off, they could actually hit an animal in the head or another human being in the head. And it didn't matter if they hit you in the head. If they hit you in your torso, they're going to rupture your ribs, and you're going to, and you may have organ failure. There's even stories, you know, Livy, when he writes about the Second Punic War, he writes about Roman slingers, you know, and they sling so many of these things that they, that they pretty much break all the bones of the Gauls be beneath their armor. Wow. <laughs> if they're wearing leather armor, their ribs are broken. And if they're not wearing leather armor and they get hit, just like getting hit with a bullet in your helmet, it may still give you a concussion. They're getting yeah. concussions. It was never a fair fight. No, try, try taking your, your eight-foot long spear and having a fair fight with a wolf or a, pa a pack of wolves? No. Right? <laughs> a bear? No. Humanity wouldn't be here if we hunted or defended ourselves using spears or using, I mean, so, these things, these short, close quarter swords and clubs, they're all very romantic and they film well in Hollywood movies, you know, and they're uh, great gladiatorial combat because you've got, the, you've got the two adversaries that are in the same frame. Right. But if you go back a million years, the adversaries were never in the same frame. If you made it this far and you were a human being, you uh, mastered the art of, of death from above. I mean, right. you killed from a distance and nobody knew that you were there. It's not a modern invention. Not only would you stand back 50 meters or 100 meters, you would stand up. And by the way, you would be up, you know, at the top of, of the hill where you have gravity working for you. That gives you more range. You would be back. If you're really smart, Robert, like if I, if I told you there's a bunch of whatever creatures on the plane and any one of them can eat you or trample you, wouldn't you like to stand up 20 feet on a cliff that they cannot run up? Stand up 20 feet above them, wait for them to come by, blast them either with a, with a sling or use a, a bow and arrow. And if you miss, what happens if you miss? Just load up and go again, right? How many chances do you get? Yeah. I think do you run out of bullets? Right. Now, what happens if you walk down on the plane with your beautiful spear and sword with all of your uh, buddies standing next to you and fight it out? Risk of ruin can never, never take that on. I think this is very interesting, and it, it also highlights another difference that we have from animals. I know that humans are one of the few animals uh, that rely on visual acuity as their primary sense. I think it's humans and predatory birds. Um, and then it also comes down to our dexterity, right? The, the, our ability to handle and manipulate bow and arrow, sling, these types of missile weapons um, just sort of highlights, uh, again, kind of a, a difference in, in us and everyone else. And those two things, too, are both intimately related with speech and thought and, and other tool making. So I think that's very interesting. You think about the idea of missiles, right? I need my eyes, I need my brain, I need to set up the kill zone. 
Oh, by the way, I left off one one other observation, right? <laughs> it's 500,000 years ago. You want to kill something, you're down, uh, you're downwind from it. The sun is to your back. You're above it and you have a missile. And hopefully you have a channel, right? Uh-huh. If you really want, but it's like you really want to live. That's you're going to go find that spot. You're going to say, at this point in the day, the sun is going to be to my back. The wind, prevailing winds are going to be blowing in my face. I'm yeah. going to be 20 feet up. Oh, there's a path up here, but guess what? I'm going to block that path because I don't want the bear running up to eat me once I start right. killing it. Right? Then and I'm going called- to make sure I got a hundred missiles. And again, it's not a fair fight. And there's only two types of human beings. There's the type that figured that out, and that's your grandparents. Mm-hmm. And there's the type that were a bit sloppy about one of those things, and they They're didn't gone. make it. They're gone. This all this all calls to mind uh, Sun Tzu, author of the the Art of War. I, I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said terrain is the most important aspect of any battle. It's almost like the smart general only goes into battle essentially knowing that he's won based on these preparations like you're describing, right? Sun at your back, wind at your back, high on the hill, undercover, plenty of missiles. Technologies that are dominating today, they're dominating because they're able to deliver force faster, harder, stronger, smarter. Like how, if you're going to dominate, how do you deliver force Harder, faster, stronger, smarter. And um, I could think of a hundred examples in history and and they all, you tend to see those things. So if, uh, if it's got the characteristic that it can be made harder, it can be made smarter, it can be made stronger, it can be made faster. There's something compelling about it. That's why digital gold is thousands of times better than gold because you've got all those dimensions to work on. That's why the the natural creature, gold is a rock, a bear is a bear, a mastodon is a mastodon. They're not getting harder, faster, stronger, smarter. They're just doing what they do. Human beings are. but only because of innovation. And so, so missiles are just a tool, but they're illustrative. Fire is an energy network, an, an energy source. It's a, it's a battery, an energy source, and, and you can deliver it in a certain way. And then that takes us to hydraulics, which is, which is um, power from water, and water is a network. And uh, we talk about elemental forces, fire and water, right? Well, you ever look at the ocean and what the ocean does, right? Wave action is incredible energy. But um, another source of energy is buoyancy, right? You, I take, uh, you ever try to pick up a 2,000 pound weight and carry it on your back up a hill or just across? Put a 2,000 pound weight on a, you know, on a, a carriage, put it on the back of a donkey drag it on skids, problem, right? In this particular case, can't be solved with fire. We can't easily burn it. 
On the other hand, if you needed to move 2,000 pounds, you put it on a barge, you put it in the water, and the water pushes back 2,000 pounds, and I can push it with one hand. And uh, this is a fast, the, the mastery of hydraulics is fascinating. I went to MIT. MIT's mascot is a beaver. And we all, we have rings that have the beaver on them. And they talk about, you know, why are you the beavers? And the answer is the beaver is nature's engineer. And the beaver is this, you know, nearsighted, short, waddling creature. It shows up, looks around, sees the water flowing, you know, and what? It can just be, I don't know, bobcat bait or whatever, bear, bear dinner. Or it can do something about it, and and what the what the beaver does is just pretty unbelievable. The beaver starts chopping down trees, but first the beaver figures out where to chop down the trees. Then the beaver chops down the trees. Then the beaver turns the trees into a dam. Then the then the beaver you know it channels the river into the dam, creates a pond, floods the pond, or it's like it's reading the terrain. Yeah. After it's got the pond, it creates a lodge in the middle of the pond with an entrance underwater, and then it creates its life in that lodge. That pond, water, water is elemental to life, and that pond creates a creates an elemental, it creates a vibrant ecosystem, and in that ecosystem, lots of things grow. <laughs> yeah. But for the most, and lots of creatures benefit. I mean, the ecological diversity improves and, and uh, it's good for all the plant life. It's good for all the wildlife. People lament the loss of the beaver screws up forests. And the beaver is just doing its thing. And if there's, a, if there's a storm and the dam gets messed up, the beaver swims out in the middle of the thunderstorm or hurricane or whatever it is and fixes the dam. It's a very industrious creature. And you just kind of sit back and, you, and you're in awe and you think, well, how did a creature figure that out? And then, and then what does that mean to humanity? Of course, it means a lot to humanity. I, I've been all over the world. And um, I, like, I've been to the desert. I've been to Riyadh. I've been to UAE. I've been, I've been uh, to Singapore. I've been to Miami Beach. People think oil is money. They think oil is power. They think, you know, that, and, and let me tell you, oil is not, oil is not, it's not really power. It's not wealth. Water is wealth. Water is the key to life. If I gave you $10 billion and as much land as you wanted in the desert, you can't create life, <laughs> you know. The cost for you to create a pond in the desert, the cost for you to actually create a park with oak trees. If I gave you $10 billion, you know, you would, and you lived in the desert, Robert, what would you do with the money? What's the first thing you would do? Buy Bitcoin and exit the desert. <laughs> Spoken like a, a progressive what if you, so let's parse that. What if you didn't know about Bitcoin and I gave you the $10 billion and you lived in the desert? I guess you'd be looking for trading partners with water. You'd exit the desert, right? So it's, what do they do? You buy yourself a jet, you buy yourself a villa in the South of France, 
you buy yourself a yacht that floats in the med, you know, and then you figure out how to live your life because the cost to grow a palm tree in the desert is 20,000 a year. You want a hundred palm trees. It's $2 million a year to have a hundred palm trees. You want, you want four acres of grass in the desert. If you have a hundred million a year for right. 10 acres of grass, by the way, you still can't have it. Even if, if you spend a hundred million dollars a year to put 10 acres of grass in the desert, the sandstorm comes and it wipes God. you out. Right. Water is elemental to life. We underestimate how important it is until you start paying to create it. And yeah, you can stay alive in the desert, but, um, but uh, you know, a person making $50,000 a year that lives in a city that has parks and rainfall and, um, and a, a temperature, a, a nice temperature, lives better than a billionaire in the desert. Right. It's just it's just that powerful. Yeah. Now coming back to hydraulics. You know the hydraulics will generate power, right? I can harness I can harness running water running down a hill and create a turbine, and I can create a mill with that. That's interesting. Again, back to the hunter-gatherer thing. People, if you dropped me a hundred thousand years ago. And you said, okay, well, Mike, use your brain, go hunt and gather. I'd be like, screw that. What would I do? I would go find a stream with a little bit of elevation, you know, maybe a mountain stream that had fresh water because you can drink it. And I'd find a big enough one that had fish in it. And then I would find a point where I could divert the stream to create a pond. I mean, if the beaver can do it, I can probably do it. I would do some digging. I would divert the stream. I would create a lock. And at that point in the year when the salmon or the whatever are running, I might just flip that lock and I would actually divert the stream into my pond and create myself, you know, maybe it's a hundred foot wide pond. Maybe it's a 20 foot wide pond. Maybe it's a 300 foot wide pond. Maybe I waste a lot of the water. I don't care. (laughs) There's infinite. And, and I would let 500 of those little fishies get trapped in my pond. I'm not chasing after them with this stick like in Blue Lagoon. I'm not like, there's no such thing as a fair fight. I'm not fishing with the hook. You know, my idea of fishing is with dynamite. I'm going to blow up everything in the lagoon and I'm going to walk and pick up the fish. But in the absence of dynamite, I'm just going to divert the, the water. What's the flow rate of water? How many fish swim by you? I want them all. Put them in the, in the pond. Then what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to go pull out one a day. And I'm going to let the other fishies swim around. And if, it, if the winter comes and the pond freezes over, that's okay. I'm going to chip a little hole in the pond. And I'm going to walk out every day. And I'm going to reach it and grab my fish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to eat my fish, and I'm not chasing after stuff. When you chase after stuff, you twist your ankle, and if you break your ankle, you're dying, <clears throat> right? And you chase after stuff, and then a wolf pack catches you from behind, or you piss off an angry mastodon. So 
hydraulic power. It's, it's the water. It's going to bring you something to drink. It's going to bring you something to eat, right? By the way, maybe if I'm if I'm worried about the little creepy crawly creatures or whatever, I'm going to dig a trench around where I live, and they're going to have to cross the water to get to mm. me. Yeah. Right? Maybe I'll use water, a moat. Right. You know, if I live on a seashore, I'm going to create a. T- I'm going to find a natural tidal basin, and in that tidal basin, I'm going to let creatures crawl in. You ever watch? Yeah, I went to Maine once. You ever watch crabbers, right? Or, or actually lobstermen? I've seen it on TV some, never in person though. Okay, well, so so if you don't know anything about lobstermen, you think, oh, well, these are guys out hunting lobster with a trap, okay? When you go watch the lobstermen operating, you realize they're not hunting lobster. They're not catching lobster. They're farming lobster. Mm. (laughs) Big difference. They drop, they drop the trap and they, they, they'll create a trap. They'll put some, uh, some kind of herring or herring or something in the trap to what the lobster wants to eat. They drop it. They put 10 of those cages down and they wait. Lobsters are lazy. Lobsters crawl into the cage. They grab the food. They get stuck in the cage. They pull the trap up, they find a big lobster, they keep that one. They find little lobsters, they throw them back in because they need them to keep growing. Mm-hmm. They feed, they're creating agriculture to feed the lobster. The lobster's living in happy lobster hotel its entire life. <laughs> it's, not, it's not so bad, Rob. If I said to you, uh, you know, I'm gonna give you like free room and board to age 70 and then I'm gonna eat you. Well, not so <laughs> Not so compelling. But if I said to you, Robert, I'm going to give you free room and board until you're 750 years old, and then your life is going to end. Or you can make it on your own, and you'll suffer a horrific death being eaten up by a barracuda at age 35. You Mm -hmm. might think it's not so bad living, you know, in your lobster hotel 10 times longer than you would live naturally. It's not like these lobsters would have made it very far. They're liking it. They're domesticated lobsters. Right. Nature tends to pursue the most energy efficient strategy available to it, right? Whether you're the eagle driving off, dragging the baby goat off the cliff or you're the lobster enjoying the lobster hotel um, or you're the man diverting the stream to capture a bunch of salmon, you have a tendency to want to do the least but achieve the most, right? It's kind of the nature of, of productivity itself. I'm channeling energy. And I'm <clears throat> yeah. No, I and not wasting any in the process, channeling it as efficiently and, and usefully as possible. The pyramids got bought, built 2,000 years before Cleopatra and Caesar. Had they haul it up there? And some of the most fascinating videos I've seen on YouTube are those YouTube videos that show how they build hydraulic elevators to move a two-ton or four-ton stone up by floating it, you know, up a channel to the side of a pyramid. And I totally believe that's how they did it. They actually used hydraulics to uh, to construct the pyramids. It makes. I actually, so- haven't, I haven't seen that. Actually, I've always seen them rolling them on the logs. How how were the hydraulics constructed? They you have a tube of let's say you have a tube of water. If I put something in the bottom of the tube that's lighter than water with a float attached to it, I put a rock 
with a with a float, maybe you maybe you take uh, animal skins and you and you blow them up with air, it will float up the tube and pop out the back. Uh, All you got to do is is have the tube be able to hold the integrity. And so I can't do it for a thousand feet, but I can do it for twenty feet. It's like um, the way a lock works in a in a, a canal. Okay. Like I'm going into a lock, I close the gate, I flood the lock, it lifts the barge, I open the other locks, and I go out. So imagine a series of locks that I use to actually lift a hundred thousand tons of stone using water. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's like very, very interesting. Uh, yeah, I think that that's how it was done, my opinion. But water can be used for farming, for fishing. It can be used for security. It can be used for sanitation. In fact, there's a, you know, without understanding water and the dynamics of water, there is no cradle of civilization in the Aegean or anywhere. And I'll give you another interesting vignette. I go to Santorini. And uh, Santorini's built up on this uh, caldera, you know, looking down on the a beautiful white white city, right? Yeah, it's beautiful yeah, city. It's gorgeous, yeah. Okay, well, in the 20th century, you can take the elevator up. So I take the elevator up from the port, and the city is 500 feet above, or some number of feet above. And then on the way back, I see I see uh, donkey rides, and you can take a donkey up. You can take a donkey up uh, to Santorini from the port or take a donkey down. I'm like, I was in my fitness craze and I'm like, well, I'm not riding a donkey down, but I think I'll just walk down. I mean, what's the problem? I think I can walk. I don't need to take the sissy elevator. So I start walking down these steps and the steps aren't terribly difficult. What do you think I see as I'm walking down the donkey steps? Donkey do? <laughs> How much of it do you think I see? Uh, probably more than you wanted to. <laughs> a river? Wow. A river of donkey excrement. Mind you, this is like three or four tourist donkeys taking down the occasional tourist. A river of donkey excrement. And you can hardly avoid it. You're hopping this way and that way. And then my brain starts working. And I start thinking, hmm, what happens if there's 100 times as many donkeys? And what happens if they're walking through a city? And what happens if it doesn't? How do you clear this stuff? It's not like they had hydraulic hoses and they could just clean it. By the way, they're not clearing it in the 21st century in Greece. It's a river of donkey crap. I mean, they haven't figured out how to clear it 3,000 years later. So let's go back 3,000 years and, and let's do the thought experiment. What's it like to live in a city using animal power to move stuff around? Dirty place to live. Awful, but also unsanitary. I mean, fly-infested, typh typhus infested typhoid right. you know germ infested and then when it gets dry and this stuff desiccates and it blows through the air you're going to be breathing it smelling it it's going you know it's just going to be awful so 
You want to drink it and eat it? Okay. This is not just a matter of uh, creature comfort. You're going to die. <laughs> you, can, no. you can't actually bring together a bunch of human beings unless you work out the sanitation problem. And it was then and there that it dawned on me very viscerally, there's a reason why all the streets in Mykonos are so narrow that you can't get a, uh, you can't get a horse or a cart through them. They're walking cities. By the way, there's a reason that, that equus and, the, and the, equ the equestrian class the, uh, were the Roman knights. The knights were the equestrian class. And what it meant in ancient Rome was the top 1% or the top, you know, 0.1%. The, the nobles of Rome were the equestrian class. What it meant to be rich and powerful was you had the right to bring a horse into the city. Nobody else. Could. The problem was not they couldn't afford the horses. The problem mm. is they, if they allowed anybody to bring a horse into the city, it would be so unsanitary as to render the city uninhabitable. So most ancient cities, if you wanted them to work, you would have to have them human powered. And now you've got this dilemma of how do you move goods around? Tell me, how do I move things around cleanly? I need a clean energy source that is not going to foul my sanitary system. It's not going to actually kill me. And of course, it's a boat, right? Mm -hmm. What do you want? You want 25 cities with ports on an inland sea with at least a season, six, six to nine months a year, where you can cross from one point to another point without being dashed and killed on the rocks. So you need a fairly mild sea, but you have to have water because if you have the same 25 cities on land and you're going to use horse or animal power in order to move goods and services back and forth, it's just so dirty, right? So unsanitary that your civilization is probably not going to get off the ground. And so, so the, the Mediterranean was ideal for this. sounds like the Mediterranean is the perfect ocean yeah. because, because you can oftentimes navigate without leaving the side of land it's hard to get too lost. <clears throat> there's a lot of ports. Very placid, relatively. And, and there's a lot of stops. If, if you look at all of these empires, uh, the Phoenician Empire, the Roman Empire, the Venetian Empire, the British Empire. You know, if, you, if you actually tour all the great ports in, in the Mediterranean, all the really good ones, the story goes something like this, <clears throat> like uh, maybe you go into Bonifacio in Corsica. Well, in 1000 AD, this was a Phoenician port. And then the Greek empire came along and it was an Athenian port, 500 AD. The, and then the Carthaginians kicked them out and it was Carthaginian port. And then the Romans kicked them out and it was a Roman port. And then after the Romans fell, the Venetians took this over, this Venetian port. And then eventually it became a, a British port, you know, <laughs> Like that's the story of Malta. That's the story of Corfu. That's the story of, you know, of, uh, of lots of different ports in the Mediterranean. And the reason why is if you want to dominate the Mediterranean, you need to have a port within one or two days sail that you can hide in whenever the mistrals blow. 
And if you control that network of ports, when the weather goes bad, you go into the port and your ship doesn't get sunk. And if you don't, and you're like a week away from a port that's friendly and the weather gets bad, you get dashed against the rocks and you just die. <laughs> you know? mm, and that's the no. end of it. And so these are all nautical networks and, uh, and they're all based upon terrain. And uh, the Mediterranean was a good crucible for, for the, you know, the beginning of a civilization and when you put together, you know, the incredible power of, of hydraulic transportation and then you consider the consequences of not having it, you realize you can't really develop the, the economic density. We haven't touched much on agriculture. We could, mm. but the general theme is the same, right? When I drop you and you find a fruit tree, you're not going to go, oh, duh, there's a fruit tree in this clearing. I'm going to walk 18 miles to the place where I can find a different fruit bush. And then I'm going to walk five miles back to the place where the fish are. You're going to actually pick up the fruit tree and plant like 100 fruit trees next to your fishing pond. Right, right. You know, I mean, you're not stupid. Like, no. like Paleolithic man, there's every reason to believe they were smarter and stronger and tougher than we were. I mean, they, yeah, right. That, so, so this is a mess around. I think it's a great point that all of these inventions were leading towards increasing economic or energetic density, and that's what actually provided the bedrock on which to build a civilization. So, maybe I'll try to give a, a quick overview, and feel free to jump in if I'm missing. But started out with. Uh, we can't handle an animal one-on-one, -on -one, right? It's kind of our wits that make us who we are. Through our wits, we're able to communicate and coordinate with one another. Uh, one thing we didn't get into is kind of the Yuval Harari sapiens thesis, where he says that man came to dominate the world because we can tell and believe stories. Like we're actually able to abstract and represent reality and symbols. And that's what gives us the ability to make tools and, and so on and so forth. But so with those strategies, that are often cooperative. We've energized them with fire as kind of our, our base. Um, I guess we're harnessing the energy of the, of, the, of the world and ancient sunlight through using fire. And then the other interesting thing about fire is that it actually accelerated our own evolution, right? Our cognitive development was increased because we're able to liberate more calories from food and whatnot. Um, and then also gave us the ability to make uh, harder, stronger, better tools, I guess you would say too, in terms of metalworking. And then we could talk about, uh, and I, actually I think that's a great point too, is that mankind actually changes his own course of evolution through the conscious decisions we make, like the tools we make in turn make us, which I think is a really interesting point to, to touch on later as well with, with money. And then we had missiles, right? So we could actually take advantage of our visual acuity, which is something unique to people, uh, and, our, and our dexterity and actually hunt animals at a distance and hunt them on a terrain that was advantageous to us. Uh, and then we had, we had to tap into water, right? Because we, we are water, first of all, like humans are 70% water. We have to consume a lot of water very frequently. I think that's the, the quickest way to die, right? It's like oxygen first. We have to have that most frequently. Water second. Um, three, minutes, three minutes without air three days without water, three months without food. 
Exactly. And I've read too that people going without water actually cry tears of blood. It's one of the symptoms that makes your eyes bleed. Just interesting. And then, uh, so not only is water clearly this life-giving substance that we have to, you know, have access to fresh water and be able to implement it into our agricultural systems and whatnot, but it's also a tool for, for overcoming gravity, right? So we could actually construct larger, larger scale structures um, and conduct commerce kind of at scale. So I think that's a, a great first principles view on what makes us unique. And we got to do all that to get to the Iron Age. Yeah. <laughs> and we come back to this issue of uh, <clears throat> being harder, right, and being stronger. You know, we harness that fire and we start to work metals <clears throat> and uh, we move into bronze and then we move into iron. And I think um, the Roman Empire is, uh, is a great, it's a great model for uh, the way that human beings interact with technology and the way that they interact with um, uh, with a competitive world or and become both anti-fragile and get harder, smarter, faster, and stronger. And, and uh, th this same thing was going on in other parts of the world, but I'll, I'll focus upon Romans for a bit you go read Livy's history of Rome and he, you know, he writes about the Roman Republic had 700 good years, 700 years before it even went to empire. And we start with this idea of Roman politics. Um, you've heard the phrase, beware the Ides of March. And it refers to you know, Julius Caesar and, you know, people think of it as, as, uh, oh, well, that's, when someone's going to kill Caesar, but it's really referring to the fact that for 700 years, the Romans got together on March 15th and had an election every year. The Romans, the Romans had, were the most organized uh, of all of the civilizations we can find in the ancient world, and that's how they grew to dominate. They, they were just organized, and and what the, one of their forms of organization is, and this is a thing of beauty, they're running a process where every year, March 15th, they have their election. They appoint two consuls. They appoint all their officers. The consuls then, they, they conduct about two weeks worth of uh, religious ceremonies. They all worship. They appease the gods. They're getting psyched up, right? They're, they're reminding themselves that they're unique. They're celebrating. Simultaneously, they raise an army. They train the army. We go from March 15th all the way through to May 1st, six weeks. <clears throat> In those six weeks, they get organized, uh, celebrate, get excited, wait for a good omen, and they're really, they're really getting ready. And then the campaigning season starts, May 1st. Everybody that knows anything about Europe and the Mediterranean knows the weather gets good on May 1st. The problem before May 1st, it rains, there's storms. If you set out to sea or you set out across, uh, across terrain before that time period, <clears throat> if the cold doesn't get you, the storm's going to get you or your ship's going to sink or something. It's, you know, ultimately, right, the, 
in the history of all these wars, more people die from natural causes than they die from bullets of the enemy or, or from the enemy. So the number one danger is nature's going to kill you. So right. the Romans basically did summer campaignings. <clears throat> And so May 1st, they start to campaign. That goes through June, July, August, September, all good months. If they're still fighting something, maybe around October, they wrap it up. They go into winter quarters by November. November, December, January, you know, maybe they have half of November, but certainly December, January, February, that's winter. They're not doing anything because the because the elements are a much bigger threat than than the enemy is. <clears throat> and and if you know anything about the med, you know, you can't navigate the med in the mm. winter. Mm. Like e even in the modern day, it's uh, you no one would, you know, want to go yachting in the med in the winter. It's just not comfortable. Mm. You get storms, weather is very un uncertain. So all this time they're resting, they're recuperating, they're regrouping, they're politicking, you can imagine. Mm. They're discussing with each other who's most suited. That guy's long in the tooth, that guy's lost a step, this is the up and comer, you support me, I'll support you. Mm. They're working through that consensus back in Rome and they're remembering what, it, what it's like to be a Roman. And then along comes March, and then they decide who's going to do what. And everybody gets, the, you know, you're going to be a tribune. You're going to be a consul. You're going to be a governor. Let's put in place the administration. And they're always rotating and they go and they do it again. And if they send off the best and the brightest and the guy takes an arrow in the back and he dies, well, next year there's another guy. You know, Scipio Africanus, you know, like one of the most famous Roman generals of all time. He rose to power, you know, in his early 20s after all of his, his uncle and his father died in the, um, in the Second Punic War. His entire family was getting wiped out, but there's always another Roman, always another Roman, always another one, you know, from a very early age. And so the political system had a, it had a certain elegance to it because it was tied to the calendar. It was tied to nature. It was a natural cycle, and it took into account the need of, uh, of human beings to celebrate each other's successes. I go campaign, I come back, I get a triumph. It took into account their need to have a, a common faith. You know, the faith is critical. If we're not all Romans and if we don't all believe the same thing, why are we going to die for each other? Right. Faith mattered. But the weather mattered. Yeah, right. And, and you know, it's like people don't realize they did it every year on March 15th because they're getting, they need, if I told you the weather's going to get on May 1st and you need an army, when would you start? You know, like, right, right, right. They're kind of, they're pretty smart. Oh. Seven years of it. That's the Roman way. And then they also took into account human motivation, which is everybody's got an ego. Everybody needs their turn. Nobody can hog all the power. So even if you were the greatest general this year, you got to give it up to someone else next year. Hmm. And as long as they kept turning up, and if, if I'm the second most powerful family and you're from the most powerful family, maybe I'll support you for console with an understanding that it's my turn next year. Right. You know, and it's like we, and then maybe my family will fight and die for you. 
because we have a chance at glory next year. But in the, at the point where you take over and you tell me, well, you think you're going to just keep the job for the next 62 years. At that point, the fabric of the civilization starts to break down because, right, right, right. because that equity and that, uh, and that citizenship and that sense that we're protecting the Roman way of life starts to degrade to we're just helping somebody's dynasty screw them. Right. So it's the, di- the dynamism of the hierarchy keeps it revivified and, and fresh, and they're harmonized with nature. That's very interesting. Anti-fragile. Right. right? The Romans are anti-fragile. They're always going off to fight. Always, always, always. It's just the history of war after war after war after war. But, they're, but, but they've got this... You know, like a typical CEO, right? It's You could be in a job 10 years, 20 years. I'm 55. I've been in my job for quite a while. But it's not uncommon for someone in modern-day America to, um, uh, to be doing a job and become CEO somewhere between age 40 and age 65. Not uncommon. In fact, the captain of a yacht will oftentimes be 40 and they'll, they'll stay as captain until they're 65. You might do the same job for 20 years, 25 years. <clears throat> um, I once took a tour of the U.S. military and uh, I was treated like a senator. And so it was, a, it was an orientation tour um, and they would take you uh, to Army base, a Navy base, an Air Force base, a Marine base, Camp Lejeune, Fort Hood, you know, um, et cetera. And one of the things they did is they took us onto an aircraft carrier, the John Stennis. And so I landed on an aircraft carrier and then I got to tour the carrier and then I got to meet the captain. The average age of the soldiers on the aircraft carrier is 19. Average age, 5,000 people on the aircraft carrier, 19. The officers are in their 20s, some in their early 30s. Do you know who, the oldest man or woman on the carrier, Robert? The oldest? No, the I don't. old man? The old man is 41. Wow. I and also I start talking to him. And the and the number two is 38. If you're the opera, you're the number two operation head of operations, it's an 18-month gig. And if you're the captain, it might be 36 months. And so I started talking, and this is a nuclear powered aircraft carrier. These guys can start a war. They start a war. Like it's like one twelfth of the firepower of the U.S. Navy. Right, right, right. You could take down all but like three countries in a heart. Maybe you could take down any country in a heartbeat. It's a pretty important job, Robert. Right. Wouldn't you say? Right. Absolutely. Um. So I said to him, so tell me your path to get here. And he goes, well, you know, I went to the Naval Academy and, you know, I did this for a few years and every sing- every one to three years, I moved to a different command and, and uh, I finally made it as a, you know, XO number two officer like two years ago and I got promoted, you know, six months ago and I'll have this command for like 24 months or something. And, and I said, well, let me get this. So, so there's only like 12 of you, right? So, so you're one of the top 12 most talented uh, officers in the entire Navy. Like how many people in the Navy? 
hundreds of thousands of people in the military. This is one of the 12 most important jobs in the United States military, bar none. I'm like, so in like 12 more months, you're leaving. He goes, yeah, I'm leaving. I said, why wouldn't they want you to do this job for 20 years? Like, you could start World War III. I mean, like, why would you take the risk of, like, changing and putting someone else in the job? What if they screw it up, you know? Like, mm. like we don't do it, but Robert, we don't do that in any other part of our economy. We don't actually put 40-year-olds with term limits of 36 months in charge of cities, states, countries, companies. We don't even put them in charge of yachts. If you had a hundred foot pleasure craft, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. You'd be like, I find one captain. I'm keeping the guy for 20 years. I'm not changing. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't actually do that with a person that like cooks your food or mows your lawn. So why do you think this guy's got to go after 36 months? Any guesses? Because the answer is going to blow your mind. What jumps to mind is if he were to get paid off or corrupted or something, but I I really don't know. That's not a bad idea. It's like, that's like the the forest ranger principles. Like we rotate the forest rangers in order to keep anybody from bribing or corrupting a forest ranger so they don't misuse public national park resources. Mm -hmm. Brilliant idea, right? Uh, Bedrock of the forestry service and a great anti-corruption technique, but that's not why. I'm standing on the deck of this aircraft carrier talking to this guy who a lot of, you know, a lot of people think like he's just a junior executive. Maybe we're ready to give him a whatever. And I said, so tell me again why you got to leave this job, even though you're the best guy in the Navy to do it. You're obviously hyper talented. He goes, well, Michael, There's a lot of really, really good people coming out of the academy every year. And everybody needs their turn. Hmm. Everybody needs their turn. Hmm. Talking about a 21-year-old lieutenant coming out of the Naval Academy saying... These people signed up to commit their life and their career and potentially sacrifice their life to be a Navy officer. And at the pinnacle is their hope that they can be the captain and have their own command. And at the pinnacle of that is captain of an aircraft carrier. And if you want people to love and fight and die and cherish your institution, you got to get out of the way and give them their chance. I mean, everybody needs their turn. And you start thinking, maybe we overestimate ourselves, right? This is why, again, a decentralized organism like Bitcoin is superior to a company because, as Charles de Gaulle said, right, graveyards are full of the tombstones of indispensable men. Right, yeah. Right? It's like... This makes me think too, a hundred percent. This makes me think too, as a kid, there, there was this notion that anyone, you know, I grew up in Tennessee, but anyone could be president. Anyone could be the American president. Not now that may be kind of silly and uh, not actually the case, but that notion seemed to give people, at least kids, uh, this, this motivation to really want to be patriotic and, uh, 
part and parcel for their, their country. So it seems like something about uh, the possibility of achieving the highest level within an organism or organization sort of gives people maximal motivation or something like that. There was a time, like, there's a certain pride in being a naval officer if you believe when they, when the head of a carrier looks at you when you're starting your career and says, you know, one day you'll have your turn at this. No. You and I are comrades. You're as good as me. You're the future of the Navy. Right. That's what will cause people to lay down and, and, and die for you. Right? That's inspiration. Absolutely. That respect. Yeah. And that's what the Romans had in those 700 years, the height of the Republic. It's you're a Roman first this year. Maybe you're, maybe you're under the command of, you know, your family's number one adversary, but next year that'll be your command. Right. And that's the Roman way. And, and there's a certain submission to nature and uh, to the will, uh, the organism is greater than any one individual, any one family, and uh, it's continually refreshing itself. We have to have right. a constant flow of new talent, new leadership. Someone drops the baton, someone else picks up the baton. That's what made the Romans great. They they suffered no kings among them. Right. You look at the. Uh, the Second Punic War, and then the, I think maybe it was the Second Macedonian War. Eventually, the Romans went to fight against, like I guess, Philip of Macedon. He was a king, and and he had an awful son, and his his one son got fighting with his other son and convinced the father to murder the second son. And then the father realized that he made a mistake because his first son lied to him. You know, and the father was a nutcase, crazy guy, and the son was kind of crazy, and it corrupted the entire society. And the Roman consul was was just the most talented general, and he knew that, you know, the way it worked is his officers were from every other competing family in Rome. If that general was lazy, drunk, cowardly, or stupid it got reported back by the officer court to Rome and to the Senate. And so they were slightly gossipy, but the point is when you know that everybody's watching you and that you can be replaced and will be replaced next year and your future is uncertain, it brings out a higher degree of professionalism and that's the competition in the market. Just like, you know, yeah. Right. You're a miner and they cut off your electricity while your mining rig stops and the mining shifts somewhere else. Absolutely. That's the reason entrepreneurs in the free market are accountable to the preferences of their customers, right? Because they constantly face the existential threat of customers going elsewhere. Whereas the opposite would be true in a monopoly, right? The monopolist doesn't have to give two shits about his customers' preferences because they have no other choice. So I think that's really interesting. So the Roman political system, it, it bred harder, stronger, <clears throat> faster, smarter individuals. Mm. And, and it was that no apologies about it from age three. This is the way it is. And, uh, and Rome comes first and everybody else's interests are subjugated. And when you look at that, right, they started with that system, a good system, I mean, people forget about it. 700 years as a republic. 
I mean, find me another Republic lasted 700 years, conquered mm. the entire known world. <laughs> then you've got the Roman army. And uh, that tells a different story. I mean, the Roman army is, it, it takes us back to this issue of, there was never such thing as a free, fi a fair fight. The Romans weren't fighting fair. They would have laughed at you. You know, like the, the Roman approach to this was, was to take, uh, you know, my illustration of the slinger on the cliff and take it to a whole new level. The Romans manufactured, you know, ballista and they manufactured catapults and they manufactured every sword to be the same length, every shield to be the same size. Every, every soldier took the same step, the same length. Everything was the same. You could be an eight foot tall Goliath and the Roman five foot, 10 inch tall, normal dude, right, is going to beat the crap out of you because you're not going to get within 12 feet of him because you're going to take a spear in the gut from the 12 guys standing to his left and his right as you charge, mm -hmm. yep. right? There's no, there's no, in, in all of these time periods, all these wars, and you read Livy and he describes them very in depth over and over again hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of battles. And they always consisted of <clears throat> the Romans maneuvered to get the high ground. The, the Romans maneuvered uh, to get the enemy out on the plain. The Romans unleashed the artillery onto the enemy while they stood and obliterated 10% of them. Then the Romans unleashed some more artillery. There's one story where the Roman army cornered uh, the Gauls. The Gauls are, are on, a, on a mountaintop, on a hillside, and the Romans are below. They just surround them. They stop. They start to pummel them, and they rain down hell from above. Bullets, boulders, <laughs> flame, napalm, and... and Livy writes, you know, before a Roman even took a step toward the enemy line, half of the Gauls were dead, and 80% and of them had been maimed or incapacitated from the bullets. Wow. And then the Romans start to move up and do something. It's like, this, there's none of this. Let's just charge into battle and fight it out with our right. sword, right? Never happened that way. It was always going to be find a way to get an advantage. And, and, and by the way, the technology is like, is very critical, right? The people think like the Romans had a military industrial complex, right? You're in doc. There's a way to do it. You're going to do it in a certain way. They had an entire bottle language and an entire system of how you're going to act. And, you know, if you want something which is eye opening, <clears throat> There's this story of the Roman Navy from um, the second, uh, the first Punic War. The Carthaginians dominate the Mediterranean. The Romans are a land power. The Romans don't know anything about <laughs> naval power, but this it tells you a lot about the Roman psyche and the Roman intellect. <laughs> the Romans are getting beat up by the Carthaginians because the Carthaginians control the ports and they have the fleet. The Romans have no fleet. One day, a storm kicks up and the storm uh, the storm drives a Carthaginian ship, naval ship, into a Roman port. It's blown into the port by a bad mistral. The Romans capture it. They take it apart to try to 
figure out how the Carthaginians make their ships. Mm. And this, you can't make this up. This is the most amazing thing in history. They find out that the Carthaginians make their ships from a kit, from, from reusable standardized parts. And not only are all the parts standardized, the Carthaginians have labeled each part with the instructions of where it fits in the number of the part. The Romans deconstruct the entire thing, steal the entire blueprint. 90 days later, they made 150 ships. <laughs> you, you think these guys are screwing around, right? They're not screwing around. It's like everybody... Everybody thinks, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I'm going to take my time to figure this stuff out. Now, war has a way, war has a way of quickening your time, you know, your activity. Bam, I'm losing. I find a ship. That's the DNA. That's the formula of the ship. 150 ships. To make a long story short, the Romans win the first Punic War, and they vanquish the Carthaginians, and they become the naval power. And, of course, the car, it's not that the Romans invented everything. It's just the Romans stole every good idea from every civilization, from the Greeks, from the Carthaginians, from the whatever that they crushed. And, and uh, because they lasted, <clears throat> we're able to read their histories. But, right. you know, it, it kind of blows your mind when you think that in 500, by the way, you think the Carthaginians invented that? Maybe they stole it from the Phoenicians. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. 500 BC, if you want to win wars, you don't just make ships and you don't just train hard and you don't just make, you don't make wagons, right? Roman roads. <clears throat> the Romans had standardized parts, a standardized gauge for a wagon wheel. Every Roman wagon rolling on the road is carving ruts in the road. That gauge has to be standardized. You can't just make any wagon. You have to make it exactly the same. Right. Okay. This is uh, for all those people that believe, you know, that that recoil in standardization. Well, that Roman uh, that Roman wagon gauge eventually became the standard width of a railroad track in Europe, and then eventually the standard width of a railroad track everywhere. So, if you right. want to know how wide a Roman chariot was, or war chariot, or any chariot. Just go stand on a railroad anywhere on earth. The Romans gave that to you. And the reason why they did it that way is because if you build wagons with different gauges, they fall in the rut, they snap the axle, and that's death. Yeah. So it's like, no, it's like Henry Ford said, you can have it any color as long as it's black. No, <laughs> you can't have it any way you want it. You take it, what, what you can. By the way, it's not that every civilization figured this out. It's just that every civilization that insisted, insisted upon doing it a different way with different bells and whistles got crushed to death. Right, right, right. And, and by, there's an analogy to this in the Bitcoin world too. When you come up with a different feature and a different, it's like, it would just be 10% better you know, if you made your wagon 10% wider, it would hold 20% more and you would need 10% less and your transaction costs would be less and your whatever. Yeah. I it's think it's a, better. 
it points towards path dependence too, right? Like the fact that a technology already took a certain path, it kind of has an inertia, right? And an inertia that's carried the width of the gauge of a wagon wheel to the, the width of a modern rail. And I, th- I thought it was interesting too, how you pointed to the civilizations that went out, uh, the Romans or the Carthaginians are the ones that studied their history, right? So they're actually gleaning insights from civilizations that had come before them which again is kind of harkens back to that Yuval Harari concept of our ability to uh, abstract our learnings into symbols like language and whatnot, and then pass them from generation to generation, such that the most successful strategies take advantage of the collective learnings up until that point um, versus trying to just do something from scratch on your own. Like we all stand on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. Those, yeah, those roads, were the logistics network of the Roman Empire. And if you can move goods and services, if you can move armies faster inside your borders, then your enemies can move inside their borders, right? Then you're going to win, right? You've got, well, you've got a major, major advantage. And of course, if everybody lays down a railroad track that's, uh, that's a certain width and you come up with an idea for a car that's got a different width, who are you going to sell it to? Right. Right. Pro- the, people talk about protocols being important, right? Well, the TCPIP wasn't the first protocol. You know, Roman roads probably weren't the first protocol either. But the point is protocols matter and there's, it's arrogant Boy, I'm sure that um, the Egyptians had protocols to build those pyramids, you know, mm-hmm. standard size and standard widths and standard weights and measures. Um, those protocols matter uh, a, a heck of a lot. And uh, if you don't have them, it's impossible for people to cooperate. So money, we've talked about money a lot as, as being essential for civilization to cooperate and allowing us to uh, allowing us to specialize, but all these uh, all these other logistics protocols or military protocols are, in their own way, equally important. Um, and I'll make one last point on on just Roman engineering and aqueducts. Right, the Romans the Romans understood the the importance of hydraulics, and they took it to a new level. Um, they actually. They actually uh, created aqueducts that would bring water from up to 70 miles away to a given city. There are a lot of coastal towns on the Med that are not inhabitable. I mean, the, the natural economic density is really a function of the amount of water per year. So, so uh, if the amount of water per year is based on rainwater, maybe you can have 500 people live in the city. And if you bring the aqueduct, it goes to 5,000 or 50,000. And so the, the, the economic density requires the hydraulic flow uh, for sanitation and, and just to keep everybody alive. And uh, <clears throat> so engineering the roads, engineering the aqueducts, it's, uh, it's the rails upon which the entire Iron Age civilization was built. And Romans, if anything, they're engineers. And they elevated engineering above all. <laughs> and um, what, what is engineering? I mean, I, well, I'm an engineer. I, I, I think engineering is, is an incredibly honorable, ethical, life-affirming profession. 
that the basic credo of the engineer is I look at nature and I look at the, I look at the circumstances that I'm surrounded by and I use my intellect and every material and technique at hand in order to construct a better world for everyone and everything that I love. That's, that's the credo. I'm not, I'm not going to be a victim of circumstance. You know, I'm going to actually change my circumstances with my intellect. And that might mean build a bridge. It might mean build an an aqueduct. It might mean build a road. It might mean build a ship, whatever it is. Just like the beaver builds the dam, the engineer builds the world. You know, look at any city where you take the bridge down and try to figure out how life changes. And it's pretty consequential. So, you know, if we just, if we just leave, uh, I'll leave you with one more vignette on Rome and then we'll move on, I think, to the dark ages. Uh, I, I have a holding company. The holding company is called Alcantara. And Alcantara is based upon uh, something I saw in Alcantara, Spain. It's a Roman bridge. It stood for 2,000 years. And if you go underneath that bridge, you'll find a Roman inscription in Latin where the Roman engineer, whose name is Julius Locker, said, quote, this bridge will stand for all time, unquote. They took their engineering seriously. Right. Yeah, this, uh, I, re- I recall from Taleb's writing that the, uh, the architects of, I actually think the, the Roman aqueducts, there was a, uh, to give the architect skin in the game, so to speak, that he would be required himself or even with his family at times to stand beneath uh, the aqueduct as the scaffolding was removed, right? So he knew it was his life and possibly his family's life on the line should his architectural abilities be incompetent, right? So these, these people took... Uh, they had, again, it's a protocol, right? It's a protocol and an incentive or a disincentive to malperformance for that architect to take his profession very seriously. Um, and I think, too, another thing that came to mind is you were talking about Rome as being incipient to all these civilizational technologies and protocols we use. What ultimately led to the downfall of Rome was uh, their monetary protocol being compromised, right? It was the debasement of the coin, I think, started with Nero. Um, and eventually led to the, the forking into the East Roman Empire. Um, and, and, so and their political protocols compromise. Yeah. The series of civil wars, you know, Caesar's being the most famous, but a series of civil wars where the political protocols broke down, even before the monetary protocols broke down. But mm. you, can, you can see they're all related, right? At right. some point, the integrity of the society um, broke down. And when they lost their integrity across all these areas, the, the, the collapse of the political system begat the collapse of the military system, the religion. How, how do you maintain your patriotism in Rome when one Roman army is fighting another Roman army? Right. What, was there an inflection point that you recall that sort of led to all this, these protocols being compromised? You know, around 50 BC, it all started going bad. Mm. Maybe, maybe um, um, uh, I'll come back to it. 
a whole series of wars in Julius Caesar's youth, uh, you know, and the and uh, the rise of a series of strong men, and uh, and the, the the weakening of um, of the Roman Republic. Taleb, I think, makes great points in his books about you know how <laughs> it's the death penalty in Babylon if you screwed with weights and measures. You know, or, you know, if you're a builder and your house collapses, right, you know, yeah. some of your own family dies. It's, they're definitely great skin in the point games and they just skin in the game points, sorry. And they just remind you that, that in a society that respects natural law, right, right nature is not going to pity you and she's not listening for excuses, you know. If you, I, I know this is not quite relevant, but I can't help but, but state it. The richest man in China uh, a year or two years ago was out on summer vacation in the south of France. Uh, the guy's worth $20, $30 billion. Uh, and uh, he uh, decided to take a selfie or, or get a photo. And he stood up on a rock wall at some ancient ruin in the south of France. And while they were taking the photo, he slipped and fell off the side of the wall and plunged 50 feet to his death. And uh, it, again, somewhat uh, emblematic of the point, it doesn't matter if you have an army of lawyers and a billion dollars of clout in that last two seconds of his life, you know, he was punished by violating the law of gravity with a death sentence. That's right. That's right. It's like, you know, gravity doesn't care who you are. Right. Nature doesn't care. It doesn't. The richest man in China out of a billion people, and he was sentenced to immediate death, no appeal, in a split second for being careless. And uh, when the society... When society forms all of these appeals and excuses and, and they, they let everybody off the hook, you know, it's like, well, if you make a market in accepting excuses and lawsuits, you're going to get a lot of lawsuits and a lot of excuses. Right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> this is uh, and then too big to fail institutions, right? We're, we're interrupting this evolutionary impulse. Um, the, the, we're not learning at, at um, a business and civilizational level when we preserve institutions artificially. Yeah, I, I'm very persuaded um, by uh, all of the points made by Taleb and also by the paleo theorist about the importance of pain in life. Hmm. <clears throat> pain is a, is a natural teacher and um, you can learn a lot of things via pain, right? You try to pick up a chair the wrong way. You, <clears throat> you do something the, you know, the wrong fashion and the pain is a feedback and it's information. Mm -hmm. And when you try to cut off the pain flow through anesthetics or steroid shots or cortisone or, or QE <clears throat> or QE or an appeal or a lawyer or a bribe, or hmm. however it is, you avoid paying the price, the consequences for your misstep, mm -hmm. right? It's try to suspend gravity, 
well, good luck with that, right? Right, right, right. You could, if you could have suspended gravity, you know, for a billion dollars in that one second, how much other screwy stuff would have happened everywhere else in the world while that gravity was suspended? Right. Guy. Exactly. The damage would have been maybe a million times worse. Yeah. I mean, gra- gravity is key. There's a good reason you can't compromise nature's protocols, right? And we should mirror that through natural law. That would be the healthy approach, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the paleo theory. That's, uh, that's the theory of, um, of anti-fragility. Um, that's, the th- that's the theory of Austrian economics and right. capitalism properly understood. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Darwinian evolution and natural equilibrium. So how awesome was that, right? Michael's incredible. Uh, he's very deeply knowledgeable um, about all things history, tech, energy. Um, I hope you found that conversation as fascinating as I did. And I got a lot of fresh insights um, from talking with Michael. And I love the, the initial introduction of there's never been such thing as a fair fight, right? So. It's as if everything in nature is always trying to sharpen its strategy um, to figure out, you know, a better, faster, cheaper way of doing things, you know, namely getting food, reproducing, um, things like that. So I thought that was really interesting. And there's a, there's a nice corollary there between sort of uh, ecological strategies that an animal might use and a business strategy, right? That's, that's the nature of innovation as well. So I came to see evolution and innovation as things that are very closely connected. You know, evolution being kind of the organic form of innovation or innovation being the inorganic form of evolution, which I thought was super fascinating. And, um, you know, it's fascinating to me that thinking is what makes us the apex predator, right? It's our ability to run these simulations of future action, right? We can actually spin up avatars um, and and other elements of a situation and think through them before we actually execute. And we can also communicate about it with one another so we can out-coordinate other animals, right? So even though we may not have uh, the most uh, vicious physical appendages in the world, it's our wits that make us men that allow us to outcompete um, and be dominant, frankly, the dominant species in the world. So I thought that was super interesting. And um, on that same vein, another change in my own worldview was how Michael describes that, you know, human beings, as far as he could tell, are the only animal that play with fire. And by, use, by harnessing fire and harnessing energy, we're actually channeling energy across our intellect. Like that's another way to think about it, is that we, we, fit, we create these idea structures in the world. And the, the, the visualization I have in my mind is almost like a magnetic field. If you've ever seen a, a diagram of a magnetic field, there are these field lines that emanate out and and circle back from kind of the North Pole to the South Pole. It's almost as if we can project this intellectual magnetic field lines into the world and then actually channel energy through them uh, to create things and do things, right? These are are the weapons we use, these are the structures we build, 
Um, these are even, say, maybe like a, a boat, right? We, we've figured out how to reconstruct the raw materials of nature in accordance with a, an established intellectual pattern such that that boat now has buoyancy, right? And we can, we can move ourselves uh, without friction across water. So it's just a super interesting new way to look at the world. And, uh, you know, as he went into the, the three primal technologies, basically, that, that helped us build everything around us are fire, missiles, and hydraulics. And fire serves as, you know, the prime energy network for humanity. And one thing I've long thought about, which is really interesting, is that it's not... It's common for us to think of energy in different forms, right? Like we think of gravitational energy versus kinetic versus heat energy, um, all these different forms of energy. But if you really zoom out, I think every bit of energy that we harness on the planet is essentially solar energy, right? So like even hydrocarbons, which are very popular today, like oil, natural gas, uh, we're combusting these hydrocarbons but what they actually are, what the hydrocarbons actually are, is ancient sunlight that's fallen on the earth, right? It, it, it fed and formed this biological matter, you know, plants, plants that fed the herbivores and the herbivores that fed the uh, omnivores and, and carnivores. And the, this, all this energy capture basically dies and decomposes. And that's what becomes these layers, these sedimented layers uh, of hydrocarbons, of oil and, and whatnot. So in a way, any form of energy we tap, even if we think it's gravitational energy, uh, I mean, I guess the Earth does exert its own gravitational energy to some degree, but a lot of it's coming from its rotation around the sun, right? So most of the energy, if not all, uh, we harness in the world is actually a form of solar energy. Like the, the, the sun is truly our divine father, if you want to call it that, or our cosmic father, I guess. Um, and I guess the one other caveat to that might be starlight, you know, it contributes a small amount of energy to the world. But for all intents and purposes, all energy is solar. And I think that was a really, just an interesting way to, to look at things. And when we harness fire, right, we're, we have this force that has it's a self-generating form of energy. So once we figured out how to spark the fire and control it, we had a form of energy that could just um, expand and produce and generate itself, right? And we use this for a lot of purposes. Um, uh, you know, it's clearly like this, uh, how he described clearing a forest with fire, I thought that was a very interesting, super efficient way to clear a path of predators, of obstacles. Um, you know, fire's really good at that. And then it also, it improved visibility for us at night, right? Like, because night was our worst enemy before fire. Like when darkness fell, we were essentially neutered. You know, we're, we're, we're visual creatures. Humans rely on their visual acuity as their primary sense. So and under the cover of darkness, uh, we, we've lost this, this primary sense organ. And fire allowed us to reestablish that, right? We could actually, use it to, to wield off predators, we could use it to set up camp. Um, it just improved visibility for us in more hours of the day. Um, and it's, it's a great example too, I think, of how 
our conscious decisions and what we construct and the things we use can actually shape us. They actually, we can actually co-evolve uh, with our conscious decisions. And ex an example of this would be, you know, specific to fire is candlelight. So again, before we could harness fire reliably, we didn't really have illumination after the sun went down, right? So candlelight gave us all this newfound time to stay up late, you know, reading, studying, uh, planning, um, all these things that help make us more intelligent over time. It created this feedback loop where we discovered fire and all of a sudden fire allowed us, gave us all this, you know, found time or discovered time to continue, continually expand our intellectual horizons even further. Uh, and another thing was cooking, right? Cooking's so fascinating that we, you, harnessing fire to cook, we're actually pre-digesting our food. So we made, we liberated nutrients more easily, right? We reduced the metabolic load on the body to break down food. And by doing that, we freed up resources internally that were reallocated to cognitive development. So by figuring out fire, we were able to break down food more easily, pre-digest it, and then we freed up energy to become smarter, right? And figure out more ways to channel that energy across our intellect. So that was just like mind blowing. And then finally, uh, the fire-based signaling systems he referred to, right? With, with watchtowers, uh, flashing uh, signal fires and whatnot. That it was actually, that's like the original telecommunication network where we could project our intellect farther and faster into the world, right? We, in, we further increased that core human capability of collaboration because now we didn't need to be within earshot of each other. We could be at a long distance, right? Just, just to be able to see a, a, a signal fire from even miles away, we could communicate certain information, uh, especially when we developed codes, right? Like a Morse code you could, you could um, use by signal fire allowed us to send information you know, at the speed of light, essentially over, over a relatively, uh, relatively short distance today, but at the time a relatively long distance. And then um, the second Stone Age technology that was really impactful were missiles. And I thought this was super cool because I've never even thought of missiles uh, on the same level as fire or water. But it, it, it's such a great point because again, back to that original point of there's never been a fair fight in the universe. So the way humans can outcompete in nature is by engaging in predetermined unfair fights, right? Like we, we need to engage in conflict that we know we have an asymmetric advantage so we can preserve ourselves clearly and that we can, we can obtain the most food energy for the lowest energy expenditure, right? So like his analogy, do you want to go wrestle with a, a lion or a bear or do you want to hit it with a sling or an arrow from a uh, hundred yards away, right? There's, there's, much less energy exerted for a much higher uh, outcome of, of energy consumption in the form of food. And the slings and arrows, like giving us the power to deliver fat force faster, harder, and stronger, super interesting stuff. And then giving us the ability to really develop the element of surprise in battle, right? The advantage to be able to select 
from where we're going to start the engagement, right? From high ground, ideally, with the sun at our back, with the wind in our face, you know, downwind, whatever it may be, it gave human beings the optionality to select when and where they would engage their prey. Um, and just really interesting stuff, you know, like, I thought it was so cool. And then that, you know, back to the whole Sun Tzu thing of terrain being the primary element in any battle, right? So uh, a bear is probably the most dom dominant terrestrial creature, uh, whereas say in the ocean, say it's a great white shark or something, the bear is gonna whip the shark on land and the shark's gonna destroy the bear in the water. So it's all about the terrain, right? The terrain is the first uh, order of consideration in any battle. And by using missile technology, it lets the aggressor choose the terrain. So I just thought that was, that was super interesting. Um, really cool stuff. And then the third one, we talked about hydraulics. And I thought a lot about water um, and how clearly influential and impactful it is on our development. And you know, we, we are water, right? We're, we're constituted of 70% water. Um, the, the old adage, I think you, you go three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, three months without food, you're dead. So water is, you know, very important to have all the time. But I hadn't, you know, other than boats, right, and, and buoyancy in general, I hadn't really thought about the use of hydraulics and channeling gravitational energy. Um, and I thought it was really cool how he brought up the, the Great Pyramids, actually, at least theoretically, being partially constructed using hydraulics, that they would drill these, these long tubes or trenches and use the uh, buoyancy of water, right? The, it's, it's, it's polarity acting as a resistant to gravity, and they would use that to move, uh, to overcome gravity, essentially, and move these giant blocks that they otherwise couldn't that we just simply could not. Um, and that led to the construction of, you know, like the Great Pyramids and these other monumental constructions that we, we simply could not have completed using raw human power, right? We, again, had to use our intellect and channel energy across it to accomplish greater feats than we could um, using just our, our God-given capabilities here, or our, our physical capabilities. And I love the analogy, you know, uh, about the beaver being nature's engineer. Um, I thought it's just so fascinating that it's not like humans do have this ability to channel energy across their intellect, and we have the highest order of it, clearly. But there's is there's something in nature too, where um, you know the beaver is a great example that he's actually. He's eating these trees that says food, and then it's also he's constructing an environment for himself that's conducive to reproduction, right? He builds his little fort, blocks the river, uh, creates a, an entrance under the water, and then he has a safe place to, to mate and raise children. It's, it's as if nature has this impulse to become smarter, right? Um, so although there is this big distinction between man and animal, it just it pointed to me that 
there's also a continuum, right? Even like I think of a squirrel that, that maybe buries nuts for the winter, he's kind of engaging in a form of delayed gratification, right? It's not, he's not necessarily uh, behaving like an economist per se, but he's sort of uh, a little bit closer than uh, like a purely predatory animal that maybe just eats whenever it can. Uh, or a bird that builds a nest, you know, all these things that, that nature really is making best use of the gifts that Earth bears. Um, and I think on that continuum, humanity is just at the far, far, far end, right? And that's why we're so dominant. And um, I love the, the example too, we talking about the mode of water as an effective defensive technology. I think this points to a lot of history, right? This when say America forked off of Great Britain, uh, it was the moat of water, right? The Atlantic Ocean that made it so difficult for England to continue to project its dominion onto America. And that's what led to um, the Revolutionary War, right? And, and led to American independence. And there's been a lot of writing, I read a book called The Next 100 Years that made a pretty emphatic case for North America's geographic situation, where we have the Atlantic on one side, Pacific on the other. Um, all of this coastal access makes us a, a great trading partner. We're both East and West. Uh, it, it gives us a massive military advantage in that we can deploy um, uh, military assets in, in, into, the, into both moats, if you will, very easily. And um, I just, I thought that was super interesting, that, that whole discussion. And then, you know, when we got into the, Medi the discussion of the Mediterranean a little bit, how it was actually the cities around the Mediterranean, because it was kind of the perfect trading ground, a, a place to move goods and services across water with super low energy, right? Because again, we, um, the description of trying to push a block by hand versus putting on a boat, you can push it with one hand, right? It, once we gain the frictionless or near frictionlessness of water, all of a sudden uh, the utility of energy becomes super high, right? We can, we can accomplish great results with very small effort. And so we, these cities that dotted the inside of the, the Mediterranean, uh, this created a super energy efficient network of trade, right? And that's what became uh, kind of the cradle of civilization, right? It's, that's where civilization first picked up because there was so much, so much economic density resulted from the low energy requirements of trade within the Mediterranean. So I just thought it was super fascinating that again, back to the terrain being primary to any battle, even if it's an economic battle, right? Um, it's just very, very good stuff. And then we got into the Romans and how they conquered the Western world. And the insight for me there was that they, because of the civilizing force of trade and the interdependency they had, the Romans actually became dominant due to their self-organization, right? They were the most organized group of humans up to that point in history. And that's why uh, they became so wealthy. 
and they became so imperial, right? They, they had created so much wealth and civilization uh, in and around that, that cradle that they actually started to expand outwards. Um, and they, they developed they, they developed methods of being of doing this with uh, in accordance with the seasons, right? So they would go out a military campaign in the summer, and they would come back and have their election processes uh, in the winter, or, or whatever the exact timing was, and then they would repeat the whole thing again um, in, in the following year. And then they, they also adapted this this seasonal um, ebb and flow into their political structure, right? So they were giving everyone their chance, right, to make sure that the hierarchy. Of, that constituted their civilization was being constantly revivified with the most competent people. So they would, you know, shut off this this leader and let someone else be elected. Um, and all of that that thought and political structure is what underpins Western civilization today, right? That is that is the origin of the democratic process as we know it today. So just so fascinating to me how deeply connected we are to history. And this, the other thing that came came out to me was it was the ancient Romans that realized the value in establishing a common protocol, right? So, protocol being a means of interaction or a form of interaction or a mode of interaction, like a language or a rule set that we both abide by, and when those rules are consensually adopted and firm right? It gives us the ability to make a lot of things irrelevant. We can kind of trust the rule set, trust that we're both going to play by the rules, and we just focus on playing the game. Whereas if the rules are messy and we don't know how, uh, you know, this person, if this person is going to follow the rules next year or not, or if the rules are going to change next year or not, we can't plan. We don't have, we don't, we don't gain that ability to have a deeper time horizon or a lower time preference because the rules are mushy, right? We, we can't trust one another as well. So there, there's, a, there's a connection there between the firmness of the rule set and the development of interpersonal trust and the proliferation of civilization, right? Which, which we could think of civilization as essentially being a lower aggregate time preference for the, the civilization, right? The lower their time preference becomes, the more civilized they are. And you know these, these things find their peak expression in, in arts and culture and um, uh, morals, all of these things. So really interesting to me how all of that just built itself in layers, right? From this, the uh, energy efficiency and economic density afforded by the Mediterranean built into this civilization, built into this political structure, built into this military structure. It's just really like changing the way I, I saw all of that. It's such a history lesson for me. And that, um, too, with these common protocols, you know, he told the story of uh, the, the gentleman on the aircraft carrier that the potential for everyone needs their turn, it's, a, it's an amazingly potent motivational force for everyone in the civilization. And again, the, the relate, how I relate to that is as a kid, there was this notion that anyone could become president in school. And maybe that was just a silly, it is a silly thing. Um, but just the, the thought of that as a kid seemed to be motivational, right? Kids are like, oh yeah, I'll be president one day and so I'll get good grades and 
try hard at sport and be good and you know do eat my vegetables whatever it is it's like because there is this incredibly high aspirational goal you are incentivized and even intrinsically it's an extrinsic motivation but you find i think through that you find an intrinsic motivation to be your best and highest and most confident self so i thought that was really interesting that the romans zeroed in on that so long ago and then two they you know he told the story of the romans discovering the wrecked ship and then they reverse engineered it and then a few months later they had built you know a whole fleet of these things so it goes back to that uh concept of to never have to never be shameful to emulate right um I, what is it, like uh imitation is the sincerest form of flattery i guess but in a more pragmatic sense if there is a solution out there that works better than what you have you can't really be afraid to copy it and reproduce it i mean that's sort of what the markets are designed to do right um which gets into why things like intellectual property are, are bogus because you can't you can't own an idea necessarily right uh you can you can satisfy wants to a high to the highest degree or at the lowest cost and that's how you'll be successful in the marketplace but the idea of owning an idea um you know gets us really on that slippery slope toward totalitarianism where um things like numbers could be made illegal or certain words could be owned like it just doesn't make sense so um thought it was interesting that the romans really pressed their military advantage by readily copying ideas from either uh, their enemies or from their, their forebears. And um, the other thing there about protocols, you know, we mentioned that they, they laid out these political protocols, but it's as if by standardizing, right? We were talking about, I think, the, the width of the wheel, which is um, actually been carried over to the width of a, a rail track today. By standardizing onto these common structural protocols, political protocols, uh, again, firm rule sets, that they were able to increase their efficiency tremendously, right? So their, their productivity and output just exploded. Um, and you can think about this even with like home construction, right? If by standardizing the one type of screw or a few types of screws for different purposes, you can produce all of these things uh, at a huge economy of scale, right? So you could produce these screws at a very low cost, which would increase uh, the total output of new homes or whatever you're constructing with the screws. Versus if everyone did their own custom screw, nothing would be interchangeable. It would be hard to produce these things at scale. Everything, it, it would localize the economy for screws, which would drastically restrict productivity. So I love, I love this interesting connection between protocol standardization and economic output and prosperity. Thought that was super fascinating. And then, you know, this one really blew me away. The credo of the engineer, as Sailor referred to, as someone that looks at their surroundings and then that makes use of their intellect and all the materials available to them to construct a better world. I mean, how beautiful is that? It's poetic and it's, it seems to me I think he said it, uh, at one point, to engineer is divine. Like, it's so interesting to me that that's what we are, right? We are creative creatures by definition. Like, as an example, 
ask yourself, what is the purpose of a hand? Right? What is the purpose of your hand? It's a, it's a really hard question to answer because the hand is by definition multi-purpose, right? It can do so many different things. It can grip, it can, it can grab, it can punch, we can write, we can type, we can think. I mean, all, all these different things, we can signal to one another. The hand is itself, we, we're equipped with these ultra multi-purpose tools. And I think in terms of humanity trying to channel energy across their intellect, that it is the hand is kind of the primary output of that uh, that intent, which I thought was just really really kind of a different way to see things for me. And then finally, he got into natural law, right, which we could define as the pursuit of or the right to liberty, property, and life, right. So the right to be free, right, to freely experiment and explore, so long as you do not tread on the freedom of others. Uh, the right to property, which is, property is not the asset itself. I'll talk about this a lot, but property is the relationship between the individual that spends time investing and recreating or making an asset and that asset. So if I go out and spend my time building a boat a, a system with sound property rights would say that I have exclusive rights to that boat, where the, the area that I invested my time uh, and energy, and to the thing that I uh, spent my time and energy to create, I have exclusive rights to that object that I can then, I can actually trade those rights with other self-sovereign people. And that's, that's the flywheel of economic activity, right? So we can each specialize in a craft but we can reliably go into the market and obtain other things of value, right? We can trade our own craft for other things um, and, and satisfy all of our wants, but still just have a, a narrow um, scope of specialization that allows us to become super adept at that particular area. But that, that, that adeptness benefits everyone because we're trading it into the marketplace, right? So making the point that societies that deeply respected natural law tend to succeed, they tend to outcompete because they are voluntary games, right? If we respect natural law, we respect people's right to life, to liberty, and to property, then all of a sudden they willingly embrace that society and they work for it and they'll, they'll die for it, right? They'll, that's what even the principles America was founded upon are these principles, essentially. Um, clearly we've drifted a lot since, but um, that is, that is a, that's at the bedrock of Western civilization. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, when you, as I would say, America probably is much more closer to today, when you make a market for appeals and excuses, you're likely to get a lot more of both, right? So as, as uh, Cicero put this really succinctly, he said, the more laws, the less justice. So I think it's beautiful how the Romans embraced natural law, implemented it into their society, into their culture, uh, and that became the heritage that's pouring forth to us um, and, and forming the, the sediment of Western civilization. And I think it's incumbent upon us to study this and see how far we've drifted from where, say, America was founded in 1776 to where we are today, how much the state 
has actually become antithetical to this entire process. We have this super overregulated environment, you know, a, a vast proliferation of complex laws and, you know, a commensurate uh, downfall in justice worldwide. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I thought it was just mind blowing and we're just getting started. So I'll see you back for the next one.